Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardwar. Joining me today is our Deputy Editor, Nathan Ingram. Hey, Nate. How's it going? Hey, Devendra. It is going quite well. How are you this week? Doing well. Um, actually, not much happening in the tech mm-hmm. world. So mm-hmm. we wanted to take a step back and talk about something that we, over 100 episodes ago, I think it was episode 16, we talked about Clearview AI, that uh, notorious facial recognition company. So we're going to spend a little time this episode diving back into that. Uh, just so you guys know, Sherlyn is out on vacation. Like, she needs a rest. So Good hopefully Sherlyn will be back next week. Yes. As always, if you're enjoying the Engadget podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere, really. That's always super helpful. And, uh, you know, join us Thursdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, typically for a live stream. You could join our chat. Sometimes we do Q&As and show off gadgets. So it's always a fun time. Come join us. So, Nate, I really want to talk about Clearview AI because there have been... A few, like a lot of stories going around about um, how so many regulators, so many countries and governments are really pushing back on what they're doing. And to recap, Clearview AI, um, about two years ago, it became known as this controversial facial recognition company that was known for scraping images off the web and social media. Um, they basically made this really powerful image database that it turns out cops were using to just like throw an image on there and would cycle through all those faces and try to find a specific person. Um, just most recently, uh, in February, they claimed that they're expanding um, you know, their overall systems, and their database now has over 100 billion images in their, quote, it's called the Index of Faces. That's the dystopian world we're living in. Um, this company, like, they had a lot of controversy and a lot of criticism when they first became public, but they're still going. Like, nothing has stopped, um, except we have seen some some recent news that we want to talk about. But, Nate, first off, uh, wh- what are your thoughts on Clearview, like, what they were doing? And uh, are you surprised that they're still, like, going strong, apparently? I'm a little surprised that they're still going strong, but catching up on the news from this month, um, it seems like they really, like... And at least in the U.S., well, in the U.S. and the U.K., both hit them with pretty restrictive, uh, you know, measures that I think we'll hopefully see, you know, expanded on. Um, I think it's interesting because, right, like they're just pulling public data, which I understand, like we all put our stuff on Facebook and don't make it private. Like it's out there. Like what do we think is going to happen to it? But it shouldn't necessarily be up to the consumer to like have to safeguard their stuff to that extent. 
And then like the fact that yeah, law enforcement gets involved with it makes it even sketchier. Yeah. Maybe maybe the theme of this episode is like the wild, wild west of data, because we're gonna talk about another story later on that kind of ties into that. But yeah, here's what is happening now. Um, most recently, uh, this week, I believe a UK data protection watchdog group fined them 7.55 million pounds, uh, like $9.5 million for illegally scraping faces of UK residents on social media and the web. Originally, when we reported the story, um, late last fall, they were aiming for like over $21 million in fines. So that, that is the thing they're facing, um in march italy find them 20 million euros uh for very similar things and uh most recently earlier in may the aclu won a case against clearview uh preventing them from selling their database to most companies um and specifically too they said they would also stop offering free trial accounts to police officers uh without you know the approval of their bosses that was like the big thing because um you know officers were using clearview's technology like a search engine which without like the need to go to a judge and get a warrant or like go through any any traditional processes like that was the really creepy thing for a lot of people all that is kind of coming to an, to an end basically they can't really sell their database to anybody in america right now except for you know a couple organizations um so yeah they're kind of on the rips is how i'd like to see it but nate like is this enough? Like, how are you seeing what this company is doing? Um, do you think it's going to get any better for them? Should it? No, I think this is a good, um, like, between the ACLU decision and the UK, um, what, I, what I think you didn't mention about the UK is that in addition to the fine, which, like, a fine to me is secondary to the fact that they're required to delete all of their data in the UK. That's pretty huge to me. Like, a whole yeah. country saying, like, no, like, this has to go. Um could have like a big impact on their business if more countries follow suit. Right. Um, and then the decision with the ACLU in Illinois earlier this month, also a pretty big deal because as you said, they cannot uh, sell their data. I believe it is still accessible by federal law enforcement. Yeah. I want to say, but uh, it's, it's significantly restricted compared to how it was a month ago. So those are two pretty big deals. If you ask me. Um, and, you know, given the other things you mentioned, right, there was like the Italy fine and there's just so much heat on them now that it's hard to imagine they'll be able to just continue uh, operating as normal. But it is kind of surprising that they've able they've been able to get as far as they have. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you said, they've been doing this for years. Uh, and just now it seems like there's finally some coalescing around the idea that, yeah, we need to limit this or, you know, stop it entirely. There's a good quote from Nathan Fried Wessler, the deputy director of the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Um, when the Illinois uh, ruling came down, he said, by requiring Clearview to comply with Illinois' path-breaking biometric privacy law, uh, not just in the state but across the country, the settlement demonstrates that strong privacy laws can provide real protections against abuse. He goes on to say, Clearview can no longer treat people's unique biometric identifiers as an unrestricted source of profit. Um, other companies would be wise to take note and other states should follow Illinois' lead in enacting strong biometric privacy laws. And that's really the key because but, uh, Illinois is one of the first states to really take biometrics seriously. I feel like other states will need to do this and will need to, you know, do this on a federal level too. Um, but I, I feel like Clearview is coming in at a time where um, all these companies and a lot of startups basically had free reign with our data, right? Like Facebook, um, pretty much every social network like has risen in power. Um, 
because some of the facial recognition thing they had mm-hmm. one going too right they had one I, th- I think they they paused they had something on ring and i believe they stopped doing that because of widespread protest but basically like scraping data um that was already on the web doing all sorts of things with it like that was kind of the key to so many of these companies clearview i feel like has pushed things too far and now that more and more governments and regulators are like aware of what's happening and are worried about the potential for uh you know, for privacy abuse with facial recognition, it it is fascinating to see people genuinely pushing back against Clearview. Um, yeah, it is. It's sure is something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's just interesting to me how long it takes to sort of catch up with this stuff. Like companies can kind of get a few years head start, right, and just kind of do whatever they want, and then uh, we figure it out. And uh, you know, I think that's that's sort of problematic. But also, there's just something in, in the last decade the amount of data going around and being shared and being produced has like increased so dramatically that I think nobody was prepared for it really. And that's why we end up in so many different situations like this, where the common thread is like, Oh, somebody is doing something weird with like personal data that wasn't thought about five years ago or 10 years ago, whenever the platform or service or whatever started, started doing what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Other countries that have four settlements on uh, Clearview include uh, Australia, Canada, um, France and Germany too, like all uh, the European countries especially have been very uh, strong when it comes to data privacy. Um, so it is, you know, th- this pushback is just kind of good to see because I feel like for a long time, people weren't taking the the issues of privacy issues around facial recognition seriously. Um, we don't have any statements. I don't, I have not found any statements of Clearview, like really um, responding to like all of this pushback right now. Um, but it is interesting to see, like, I do wonder how long they'll be able to keep going, um, at this current rate, even though they say they're going to get a hundred billion images in their index of faces. Um, if every, if, if more and more companies are pushing back, um, how useful is that database going to be? Yeah. I mean, and I have to give props also to, uh, to Illinois for having the foresight. They, so this, this, uh, be the Illinois biometric information privacy Act passed in 2008 so yes. like before all this became a thing really like i was saying like it feels like the the sort of information hoovering has become the hallmark of the last decade but uh yeah they got out ahead of that and the fact that their law made it so that they can um limit the sale of it not just in illinois but across the u.s is really interesting as well like i think that's um impressive legislating i would say yeah it it is funny to see like regulators actually understand specifically what the problem is around uh, data privacy. I feel like it was only five, 10 years ago, it was mainly academics who were really focusing on this. So uh, in the UK, their information commissioner, John Edwards said, uh, the company not only enables identification of those people, UK residents, he's saying, but effectively monitors their behavior and offers it as a commercial service. And I do feel like that is a big thing too, because um, if uh, Clearview is scraping social media data and it puts somebody both targets a person's face and puts them in like a situation where it's like, oh, yeah, somebody at, at that location could certainly do a crime at some point, um, at least all sorts of judgments that we're not quite sure about. Um, so, yeah, we will be keeping an eye on Clearview AI. But yeah, I, th- I think it was good to do a recap like this, you know. Yeah, this UK ruling is like a pretty a pretty significant one as well. And I think it's just good to see how strongly they were about, you know, when they say the company not only enables identification, but effectively monitors their behavior and offers it as a commercial service. That commercial aspect is really, I mean, 
it's not great whether it's for law enforcement or for commercial purposes, but the idea of like selling your face data, like, yeah, that's just creepy as hell. And like, I don't want to see a company making money off of the fact that it like is really good at scraping the internet for like individuals. <laughs> Uh, one good link, uh, one good note that I see from our podcast producer, Ben Elman, um, he also points out in Illinois, Facebook recently settled in a class uh, a class action suit, and some Illinois Facebook users are getting like close to 400 bucks because of this to uh, $397 in checks. Um, not, not to say that uh, this stuff pays off, but uh, it, it's interesting to see these companies have to pony up, and I, I just appreciate seeing governments actually force them to to do this. So buddy 305 love in the chat room says, isn't it public domain when your picture is online? What's the logic behind not being behind it, not being public domain. And I've, I've heard some good answers to this. Uh, Nate, do you have any like thoughts before we get into it? Yeah. And I would say, you know, I am not a lawyer, so yeah. this is just my sort of conjecture, but I think that right. Technically what they're doing, they're not, it's not illegal for them to gather this data, but I think the question is whether it's sort of like, being used in a responsible fashion, right? Like to, and also like, is it okay to like make money off of it essentially? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, there are certain questions too. And it's like, it's not just images that are randomly around the web. Like it is stuff from Facebook. Um, it was stuff from Google when Google had social networks and a whole bunch of companies have basically banned uh, Clearview from scraping their databases and doing that specifically even if the information is out there and publicly, like a lot of companies do have issues with you pulling their data. Um, it is, uh, you know, it, it is sort of a tough thing. It's like, um, who who owns the data? And you know what? I feel like that's going to be important in our next story. Nate, any any thoughts you have around uh, Clearview at this point? Or what what is your main worry about facial recognition? Because we're also seeing, um, for, for me, it's law enforcement. Um, for me, it's like what they'll do with CCD, CCTV cameras, which are in most major cities at this point. Um, but I feel like things could get worse, too. Like, have you thought about this potential issue? I mean, I think every time I hear about facial recognition being used in the context of law enforcement, it's almost always getting it wrong. And like, I don't have a link right on hand, but I feel like there's been enough controversy around like a police department or a law enforcement department uses information to try and identify somebody and they get it wrong. Yeah. And, and we know like algorithmically, a lot of these things that they use to search uh, tend to misidentify people of color because they don't have enough samples. And uh, that leads to, you know, false accusations, too. Um, I think about like the value of public domain data, too. Like a lot of things these companies have done have have not been so great. Um, I think about like when Facebook started and kind of uh, the things they did to kind of crush other other social networks. When Uber started, uh, they used tactics to basically uh, wipe out the competition too. Like it is, there are some things that these companies have done that aren't technically illegal, but like morally, if we think about it, um, I I think there are a lot of issues that we we can bring up. So that's it for Clearview AI right now, but what's up, Nate? I was gonna say, I found a couple stories from 2020. Yeah, uh, about f- two false facial recognition arrests in Detroit uh, with the ACLU filing cases around them. Uh, one in one case, uh, somebody was detained for 30 hours for a crime that he didn't commit uh, based on false facial recognition data. So that's not cool. That's not cool. I mean, I, I worry I, I'm a tech guy, but I'm worried about the potential of things like facial recognition and the algorithms around them becoming like the new gods for uh, law enforcement where you know people aren't 
aren't actually doing uh, the le the legal footwork and requiring too much on the algorithms to kind of make judgments for them. So that's my worry there. And we've seen a lot of science fiction around that too, and kind of feels like we're living in that. So we're going to keep an eye on Clearview AI, but let's move on to some other news. And actually, I think related to this, uh, the New York Times had a really good story recently called The Era of Borderless Data is Ending. Um, subhead, uh, nations are accelerating efforts to control data produced within their perimeters, disrupting the flow of what has become a kind of digital currency. And this actually does tie into Clearview completely because the UK uh, was basically finding them for using uh, scraping data around UK citizens. Um, and I, I think like some data that, you know, actually began in the UK. For me, um, what like what was your dream of the internet when you first encountered it, Nate? Like for me, it was like, hey, I could talk to anybody. You know, I can build a thing, use a service from a whole other country. It doesn't matter where you are. The internet is a flat zone where everybody can be connected uh, equally, right? Yeah, it was communication, um, and I remember using it specifically like around the time I remember had a couple of like high school friends move and being able to just like easily contact them was like really nice, um, and just the idea of like that expanding was great and then just easy access to information whatever it happens to be like i remember just like reading about bands that i liked a lot and finding out when they were going on tour and like watching really crappy videos that you know came out from the shows and this is like in 1997 or so they were really bad videos but uh just being able to like keep up with stuff in real time and like also find a community around it was the stuff that like got me started on the internet for sure. Most, most definitely. Like I remember I was in like anime chat rooms early on and I had friends from like Canada, Singapore, like all over the world. And we were just like kind of all in the same space. Um, some things the New York times points out in Washington, uh, the Biden administration is, you know, pushing an early draft of an executive order to stop China and other companies from gaining access to U.S. data, uh, data from American users. You know, uh, in India, lawmakers are moving to pass a law that would limit data uh, that could leave the nation. That's a nation of 1.4 billion people. So a lot more countries are thinking about, like, the stuff that is produced within their borders and how they're accessed. I feel like China has been doing this for a while, too, right? The, the whole thing about China is that, you know, the Great Firewall kind of keeps a lot of things in and only lets certain information from the outside in, too. And it feels like we're all kind of going to be dealing with that to a certain degree. Um, is this a good thing? Is this a bad well, thing? Or is this inevitable, Nate? Like, what do you think? So the, the China... To, to Piggyback on the China bit you mentioned, my impression was always more about keeping information out of the country rather than, uh, you know, limiting where information goes from there. Uh, at least that was my like, that's how I thought about it. Obviously, it initially, work, yeah, it works mm -hmm. both ways. But um, the only like the thing I want to know more about in this uh, New York Times article is data is such a broad term. I want to know a little more about Anything. what. Mm -hmm. Right. But like <laughs> that, that's almost like too big to wrap my head around. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, anything. It is a credit card transaction. It's an image you upload. Right. It is, you know, where da you know, data around purchases you make too. Um pretty much anything like where we're right now. Um, you know, so I'm my question is why. Yeah. Let's say that I like buy something on Apple.com. Like, well, why does that information need to go anywhere but between me and Apple and like whatever they use to process payments? Mm -hmm. Well, is, that's is it. it. Who's who's processing your payments? Right. You know, is it uh, is it Stripe? Is it something else? Do they have their own payment processor? Like there are so many layers 
of all of our connections. I'm talking yeah. to you over Hangouts, Nate, yep. and Google Hangouts. Like, where is the server that is actually powering this Hangouts conversation? Um, a lot of countries are looking at things like that, like cloud computing. They're aiming to get Google and other companies to build more data centers, like, in their borders. Right. So information isn't leaving. And I think that that ultimately could help these countries, too, to a certain degree, in terms of, like, local businesses and stuff. Um I feel like that's how they're aiming at it, but it really can be anything like data protection. GDPR is a whole part of this too. The entire internet has kind of reshaped itself because, uh, you know, the EU has decided to add some strict privacy restrictions and, now we all see it too across the world. It has broader impacts. Yeah. Right. I'm thinking about your point about being on hangouts, right? Like the thing that I think like maybe like people who aren't as closely following technology as we are might be like, you forget that like, it has to go somewhere. There is a physical location where data has to pass through to get between, you know, me and you or me and Apple or whoever it is. Right. So it's going somewhere. Like you said, it could be going to a server in some other countries and then it's, it's there. And like, who else can get it then? Right. Like that stuff is really, yeah. It's, it's I feel like that was about. a lot of the initial concern around TikTok too, because TikTok, you know, was owned by a giant, uh, Chinese company and like what data does this TikTok have? Um, I think the whole Trump administration thing against TikTok was like a big joke, but there are legitimate concerns to ask about like how these country these companies, especially ones coming from far more restrictive and uh, you know countries that are doing troubling things to their citizens, like what what where is that information going? What is it powering? Right? Is TikTok's use in America uh, powering like um, you know more algorithmic stuff in China and stuff that can Right. Is there, is, is there, a, there. Is there yeah. a clear view of China scraping all this data and like making facial recognition, for example? Yep. We don't know. There's a lot we don't know. So I think this is really interesting to talk about. Uh, ben, our podcast producer, points out, uh, he asked a question, does ending the third party cookie also factor in here? Um, like the that is something browsers are doing right now. Um Bing, uh, Chrome, everything, not Bing, Edge, Chrome, everything has been trying to uh, stop the third-party cookie thing, which was a way for advertisers to track your movements basically across the entire web. Uh, another bit of like unrestricted data that I think uh, became a part of the internet um, has essentially made entire companies possible. Like Google is an advertising company, don't forget. And third-party cookies, things like that are things they've relied on. Now a lot of these companies are pushing back more and, um, you know, kind of restricting the power that advertisers have. They're trying to push companies to use like less identifiable ways to, uh, you know, locate audiences. Uh, do you have deep thoughts about that, Nate? Because I also know you're a Chromebook fan and I feel like <laughs> Chromebooks especially have kind of like the reason they're so cheap, too, is uh, in, in some sense is that Google makes money from people just being on Google and doing right. Google stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, and that's like always been the trade off, like that we've been thinking about with Google very broadly, right? Is like how much data they get from you versus I think like, you know, compared to like Apple or Microsoft, who are like much less reliant on personal data for their business. Like you said, Google's an advertising company. Uh, I believe that probably 80% of their revenue, I'm just roughly, it, it comes from advertising. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I think for Apple and Microsoft, it's significantly less or even none at all. Uh, so yeah, like they obviously have a vested interest in like knowing what we're doing online. Um, but yeah, I think that like the, the, for me, it's like transparency around this stuff is, is extremely helpful. But the problem is, is like we were talking about with Clearview, 
the data itself is so complicated and so multifaceted and there's so much of it that it's almost impossible to explain, I think, to a normal person where it's going. And like, that doesn't mean it's okay. But, you know, like you said, like a lot of these businesses have kind of come up and been developed. And now we're sort of starting to say, wait a second, is this okay? And -hmm. it's like, how do you put this genie back in the bottle? And that I'm not sure. Like, I know there's a way to do it, but it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of regulation and basically companies forcing themselves to to do better, I guess. And uh, speaking of like browser tracking, like DuckDuckGo was in the news because uh, it turns out like their company known for their browser uh, and search engine, uh, that's all about privacy, right? They're not they're not doing trackers from Google and other places. Turns out DuckDuckGo was allowing Microsoft browsing trackers um, because uh, it was part of like a marketing deal that they had made uh, an agreement in their syndicated search content tra- contract, basically. So DuckDuckGo, supposed to be fully secure, non-tracking you in any way, turns out what was kind of, you know, letting Microsoft trackers do their thing. Um, do you, are you a DuckDuckGo fan, Nate? Like, did, did you I mean, have a feeling about this? I like it uh, theoretically, but this, yeah, I, I don't, so I'm, I'm just catching up on the story now, so forgive me. But um, yeah, the idea that, this company makes their whole stance about, you know, security and privacy. And then it's like, oh, well, but we also had this little marketing deal or whatever in the background. And that, that's I just it. don't know how that's you how square those things. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And then you, you get you get hooked on the revenue and you do more of it and you do more of it. And then you're Google. <laughs> yeah. So the CEO um, and yeah. founder, uh, Gabriel mm-hmm. Weinberg, uh, basically was like on Twitter talking about this and like admitting to it. Uh, he points out that it's only with the, the web browser, not the DuckDuckGo search engine. Um, he's also said like they're trying to uh, come to an agreement with Microsoft where they don't have to do this while also keeping their deal. But I feel like just the fact that this happened and they weren't transparent about it. And uh, this is like a reputation harming thing. Maybe that maybe DuckDuckGo can come back from this. Yeah. You know? And well, and again, for me, it kind of comes back to transparency, right? Like if DuckDuckGo said, hey, we have a browser here's what it does. Here's why it's better than, you know, Chrome, Safari, Edge. Here's the trade-off. We're a business. We need to have revenue somehow to be able to operate. And this is where we're getting some of our revenue. You can at least then make the decision, well, okay, is this a lesser of two evils thing or whatever? But yeah, just kind of like pushing it through and then having it actually come out as a bad look. That's um, rough. They, they've been vocal on like Twitter. Like they call oh, out yeah. Google and everybody. Like uh, one post from like May 11th, DuckDuckGo tweets, uh, their new Chrome extension now blocks Google's new tracking method, Topics, and new ad retargeting method, Fledge. These are both ways to uh, get get around the third-party cookie, uh, you know, stepping away from that. Uh, DuckDuckGo says, Google says they're better for privacy, but the simple fact is tracking is tracking no matter what you call it. Uh, basically, I don't think DuckDuckGo has much of a moral high ground anymore for calling out these companies. Right. Uh, I think it's good. I mean, like, I think that... When I think of DuckDuckGo, obviously, I think the search engine comes to mind for the browser. The browser is more of a new initiative, I believe. Uh, so it's it's probably less impactful that they got called out in this way. But it makes you start to wonder, okay, it's like, well, what exactly is going on in your search? Let's, you know, is it is it private? But also we had a uh, deal with whoever and like, okay, well, we give we just gave them that data or like it followed you around this way. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's tricky. It's tricky. Uh, like the New York Times like, points out too. I think one reason normal people don't understand like what we're talking about when we're talking about like data just being free reign everywhere and people actually caring about this stuff. Uh, I think about like when we talk about the Edward Snowden stuff and 
how a lot of normal people just don't don't just realize off of you yeah what was happening and how governments were using metadata to essentially like uh track what people are doing and learn things about them so I feel like, I don't know, we, we need more education of data on like a civic level at this point. But with the world being on fire, I guess that is kind of tough. Yeah, yeah, it's it's slightly less of a priority, probably. Um, and again, like we've been we've said a few times, like there's just so much like I don't know how you untangle that and make it understand. It, it, it's sort of like uh, the problem with like the end user licensing agreements that you sign when you have a new hardware or start up a new software. Like there's something you, you, you know, there's 64 pages of terms that you're agreeing to. No human being can understand it, but yeah. you need to use your computer. So you agree to it. And uh, it's the same thing. It, like, yeah. how do you, how do you make that into something digestible by an average person, not a security? And I feel expert, like that, not that a, should be yeah. the goal. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, that is why I got into tech stuff is because I saw people like Leo Laporte and other like tech media guys, like just trying to break down this stuff so normal people could understand it. And I feel like a lot of this pushback has led to better alerts, right, from uh, Google and other services, like in terms of like, OK, this app is going to do this, this and this. Um, Apple's whole push now to stop apps from even tracking things like once they start, you know, once you launch an app and app your iOS device will ask you, hey, do you want this thing to be doing any tracking? That sort of awareness, I think, is very clear and is a result of people just pushing back on a lot of this stuff. So we're going to be keeping an eye on this. I know data is not the most exciting thing in the world, but everything is data. You should be thinking about this and what your data does and who is using it and who's profiting off of your data. I do hope a lot of this could end up being things where it's like the, the dream of NFTs, right? Like your thing should be able to make money for you um, or you sell access to certain things and, you know, profit from that too. So I, maybe it could lead to something like that. Um, not quite sure. Real quick, AMD is teasing their new Ryzen 7000 desktop chips, which are coming this fall with five nanometer Zen 4 cores. These are going to be the first, uh, desktop chips with five nanometer, uh, cores, basically really, really fine production here. Um, we're, it is funny to see AMD getting to this level. Like there weren't um, Ryzen 6000 desktop chips, which launched in laptops earlier this year. Uh, desktops have basically been on the 5000 line for a while. Uh, they're saying these new chips uh, are going to be more efficient, more powerful, of course, around 15% better in single threaded benchmarks. Um, but also they're going to have things like DDR5 and PCIe 5.0 built in from the beginning. Uh, they're going to have support for very, very hot chips, too, like uh, things up to, what is it here? Um, a very, very high wattage, like I believe close to 200. Um, they're going to be ready for like much faster and hotter chips. I just like seeing this uh, this spec war between AMD and Intel uh, because Intel's last chips, Nate, I don't know if you've been like following the benchmarks, but those 12 damn chips which have a hybrid kind of setup, right? They have powerful cores and efficient cores. Those have ended up being really, really great for Intel. Like they're great in laptops, they're great in desktops, great multi-threading performance, um, adding more overall cores to a chip than AMD was. AMD is not doing that. They're still doing like every core is a powerful core. Uh, But I do think like, oh man, I love seeing this fight. I just love seeing it. I've rarely come across a more Devendra story. So I'm I'm glad that you got to talk about this one today. It's a good fight. Uh, yeah, do no, you, like so do you do you have a desktop anymore, Nate? Like, no, do you care about how these uh, things are going? Yeah, I do in the sense that I really like the competition, right? Like, I think, like you just mentioned, like seeing, I feel like for a while AMD was kind of a s- second class citizen for, in the for a chip while. Yeah. for a good while. Yeah, mm-hmm. and now it feels like they're really 
uh, competing again. And it feels like they took advantage of Intel having some like, you know, slowdowns, right? And so I think, yeah, more options is better. I think that what you mentioned about Intel and the hybrid model, right, seems to make a lot of sense. And I feel like that's kind of what Apple is doing with the M1 series, right? And uh, and their A series, like they've got the efficiency stuff and then the high performance stuff. And uh, and those are all mobile seems- chips too. So they're like mm-hmm. even more um, efficiency oriented, right, than desktop chips. Yeah. Uh, something you'll like, Nate, uh, AMD announced some new Mendocino CPUs, which will likely be headed to Chromebooks later this year too. Um, <laughs> but like, for in systems price between three three ninety nine and six ninety nine with uh likely four let me see here four cores um a, yeah not not a high core count but likely including RDNA two graphics so to have you know a Chromebook that could do uh decent graphics stuff or even like a cheap Windows laptop I also like to see uh, AMD kind of focusing on this too. Well, I like uh, that, I like cheap hardware. Yeah, I would say now that uh, Steam oh, Steam is running on Chromebooks, give it a little more graphics power. I, you know, I think last time I was on, I'm going to talk about how I was uh, I was playing around with that, and it was a good time because obviously uh, the hardware I was running on was pretty modest, um, but from a graphics perspective anyway, but I could run a bunch of, you know, pretty new games. Uh, but obviously, you know, it's no different than running, like trying to run like God of War in a windows laptop that doesn't have a dedicated graphics processor. It was just a total slideshow. Like I, but I had to do it just because I could, uh, uh did was, you write that totally, up? I forget. I forget. I did, if you yeah. did hands on with that. Okay. Yeah. What is that story totally, called? Mm-hmm. Uh, let me find it. It's, it's check that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I am fascinated to see steam kind of go that route too, because Chromebooks, are supposedly only had like it's a linux uh os you know they're only supposed right. to run web browsers yeah yeah but um there's some there's a lot of this a lot of i think like at least valve's steam games mm-hmm. work on linux right so you can run mm-hmm. those like mm-hmm. natively um and then yeah there's like compatibility tools to run everything else um what did i try i tried cuphead i tried hades fallout 4 so you know not like new stuff um i tried witcher 3 wild hunt and it all worked better than i expected um you know not perhaps optimal in some cases, but like Hades was great. And like, I'm like, yeah. okay, cool. I can play that now. Oh yeah. Your, um, so your story is called steam on a Chromebook works better than I expected. So, Hey, yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. I mean, yeah. it is fascinating to see uh steam games on Chromebooks, but also uh, some on Macs too. Like a, I'm su- still surprised. A lot of developers don't prioritize Mac support. So I don't know, maybe a thing we'll see, especially with smaller indie games. Um, one final story, which I think is the most hilarious thing I've read this week. Somebody stole Seth Green's Bored Ape. And it was supposed to star in his new show. Now his show doesn't have a star. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> this is NFT in a nutshell, right? Just yeah. total, total nonsense. There, um, there's a story in BuzzFeed, by the way, by Sarah Emerson, just to frame this. He was robbed of several NFTs uh, this month after succumbing to a phishing scam. And we hear this so much. Um, and yeah, he was planning an animated series around these, these NFTs. And I feel like there are many levels of stupid right here, but also I don't, I don't know if that would have worked out. What do you like? What are your thoughts? Your first thoughts, thoughts hearing this name. My first thought is that it's ridiculous. It's just total nonsense and it's stupid amounts of money being thrown around for stuff that doesn't really exist. But going beyond that, I think the notion that, um, you know, this this thing was stolen and thus he no longer has the rights to use it. I don't know how legally sound that is because... Probably not. Right. Like he doesn't because, have access to the thing anymore, so... Right, he doesn't have access to the thing. Well, but 
Yeah. You know, he's still, you know, it, it, it's illegal. Like, if it was stolen, then how can, like, he not have the rights to it anymore? I mean, it, it's That's just true. very, it's That's very true. weird. It is funny uh, to see a lot of, like, crypto bros being like, um, uh, you, you mean the, the blockchain, the ledger is not law? What? You mean the world does not, is not ruled by this algorithmic uh, thing that I have uh, spent so much money on? Uh, Seth Green did show a trailer for this show, which basically shows, like, cut out animated board apes like walking around in real life you know cities and stuff um yeah <laughs> i mean i'm sorry for for seth green that his his ape was stolen because of a phishing attack but i think that just reinforces the fact that we all need better security hygiene on the internet people mm-hmm. shouldn't uh-huh. be letting your board apes out of your uh out of your out of your site don't like let them out of your site uh, watch what you click people uh buzzfeed uh writes unfortunately for green what also matters is copyright law and when the actor's nft collection was pilfered by a scammer he lost the commercial rights to his show's cartoon protagonist so i think that is kind of the thing the crux um, of the issue. yeah um just amazing just but again amazing. this is like such a new a new thing right like there's there's it hasn't been tested in court, right? Like I said, BuzzFeed writes that uh, NFT copyright law is like this total Wild West, right? So We, we don't know. See. It's no. all Wild West. But you know what? Go back and listen to our episode last week about the crypto crash because this is all kind of related. This is not like a market crash thing. This is like a user error thing. But turns out you have no protections at all. It's like losing Bitcoin. Like the, nobody's going to help you, man. That's not It's not federally backed. Uh, if you lost it in a it's hard drive FDIC somewhere. It's not insured. Yeah. You're just uh, you're just done. I think a new phrase we need to come up with is uh, R.I.P. NFT. How about that? Like you lose your NFT, you're just done. Sorry, Seth Green. I hope you can recover from losing your NFTs. Let's move on to what we're working on. Nate, let's go to you first, actually, because I've been talking for a while. Uh, yeah. what, are, what are you working on? What are you reviewing? I am reviewing the Sonos Ray speaker, which uh, I got to check out in New York City at the beginning of May. Uh, I can't say much more about it uh, in terms of the review, but it'll be out soon. Um, And so quick catch up. I think I came on to talk about this, in fact, but it's a $279 soundbar from Sonos. By far the cheapest uh, home theater product they've made yet. Uh, It's not cheap. Obviously, there's a lot of cheaper soundbars out there, but I think that at the price point, you're going to get a really nice sounding device for smaller rooms or smaller TVs. Uh, what what without, are you watching to test that, Nate? I watched, uh, I always go to, um, I mean, I watched lots of TV lately. We'll get into the picks lately, but I've been watching Homeland, uh, speaking of the CIA, and I've been watching uh, The Staircase, and I put some movies on there. Obviously, I go for Fellowship of the Ring to get the nice, like, clear dialogue from the the like intro combined with the like battle sounds that come right in a few minutes in. So like, that's a nice test of it. Um, uh, Pacific Rim, another good, another good, just like stupid action movie to get some like really good, like big sounds out of the thing. Uh, and then, yeah, just whatever random nonsense I watch, you know, sitcoms and stuff, but, uh, and then trying some music on it and yeah, it's, it's, it sounds good. Um, does it sound like better to you than other like soundbars in that price range i know there are a lot of vizios and things like that's my real question you yeah know, are they are they doing something new here at that price uh hard to say hard to say you have to uh, do I some think, back like yeah back and forth i think, I think right things. i yeah. think that it, it it's 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 basically 
Like the way the Sonos Roam, the portable one for $180 is like a good like gateway drug if you never bought a Sonos speaker before. Yeah, you get I love like, mine. Yeah. Right. You get a good experience for that. And then you say, oh, I can expand this. Like I can I can get bigger speakers and have multi-room setup. Or in the case of the, the Ray, if you like the Ray, you can add, you know, rear surrounds to it. And then maybe eventually replace the Ray with a Beam or an Arc and like kind of like slowly upgrade your system over time. So it's like, I think the benefits of the Sonos ecosystem combined with their like unwavering kind of quality sound design is the is, is the thing that sells us that doesn't mean it's better necessarily than like what vizio is doing but uh i think it's 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 still a compelling package based on you know what i heard i think a lot of people have to think about like what, what are you going to do with sound in your house right it's not mm-hmm. just about the sound bar it's like do you want something in the kitchen do you want something right. like do you have an outdoor space do you occasionally want to bring something out there do you you could just get a bluetooth speaker but wouldn't it be nice if you were having a house party for everything to be synchronized? Yeah. And that is basically why I ended up getting the Roam myself, although I'm mm-hmm. really tempted by the move. Um, yeah, we we have criticized Sonos uh, for the way they've kind of killed some earlier products because that is the fate of every connected product. But um, hopefully they're going to keep these things around for much longer. I think they noticed like people don't want to buy something and then, you know, five, ten years later uh, have a sub- you know, a big piece of the functionality uh, checked out. Did they respond to any, like, did they say anything about longevity for this device or other devices? I mean, so, well, here's an interesting one for you. Um, At the same time, Sonos announced the Ray. They also announced that they're doing their own voice assistant. Yes. Which I think we talked about also. And they were specifically, they made it very clear that every Sonos speaker that's been made with a microphone so that's about five years of speakers supports it. That's so, pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Way back, going to, back the one. to the original yeah. one from 2017, which has since been upgraded internally. So, um, yeah, they're like, uh, if they're bringing that to their, you know, five-year-old speaker, like, that's pretty good. Um, yeah. So I think that the Ray, like, it's it's a pretty basic device, right? Um, but there's nothing that should stop it from working for, you know, years to mm-hmm. come as far as I can mm-hmm. tell. Cool. I'm looking forward to reading that review, Nate. Uh, real quick, I am still working on the Acer Triton 500 SE review. Uh, this is a, uh, I believe, um, this is a 16-inch notebook that I have. It has an RTX 3080 Ti. I'm really interested in gaming notebooks that start to look more like just normal computers um, because I do feel like not everybody needs the flash. Not everybody needs like the gamer LEDs and stuff. This is one of those devices and it is pretty hot. Like I am pretty hot in a good way. It is really fast. That screen is beautiful. So um, working on the review, keep an eye out for that. Let's what's move on price, to our pop culture. What's the price yeah. point? Price point. I'm trying to think here. I think it starts around 1800 and the one I'm reviewing uh, probably is upwards of 2400 2600 at this point. I have to look at the exact prices. Um, it is, uh, you know, you pay more for these things, but at this point you're, you're like in razor blade territory too. And I think for the same money you could get a blade 15, uh, you could get something like this with a bigger, uh, bolder screen too. So yeah, really good time to be in the market for gaming laptops. Uh, good luck finding things in stock. That seems like the big issue. Um, but yeah, let's move on to our pop culture picks. Nate, what are you watching? Uh, as I mentioned before, I was talking about the Ray. I have been watching The Staircase on HBO, uh, which is pretty good. I mean, I, I think I read some mixed reviews of it, but uh, for me, I don't know anything about the docu- the original documentary or and the, the story. Staircase was like this really famous, like basically one of the first true crime stories to get pretty like uh, popular on a cult level. Like it was a documentary right. before that. So you haven't seen that, Nate? 
No, I believe it's on Netflix, though, so I might have to check yeah. it out after this. Just it's on like... Netflix with, like, some new episodes, too, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but that's, it was from, like, the last decade, right? I think it came out around the time of the like case. 2005, which is... like, right. way. Yeah. That's when it originally started, yeah. Yeah, so going into the show, not knowing anything about that, or the case itself has been, you know, pretty good. I think some people, like, took issue with how they, like... Like, there's been some controversy about, like, is this dramatic adaptation accurate, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. I'm not really thinking about that and just trying to enjoy it as a show. And in that respect, it's extremely tense, extremely kind of, like, creepy, uh, good stuff. The the stars on the screen there uh, are excellent. It's weird seeing Colin, Colin Firth being a bad guy, uh, essentially. Is he it, bad? I don't know. Well, we don't know. I don't yeah. know yet. But... He's, I think a lot of people you know, what, like hey, whether that, he did the crime or not. He doesn't yeah. seem like a very good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's kind of a he's kind of a jerk, and uh, it's also interesting hearing his American accent. Um, and then Tony Collette. That's also. always weird. That, yeah. is, that is weird to me. Uh, I want to shout out Top Gun Maverick. It turns out, guys, <laughs> the sequel to Top Gun is pretty freaking rad. And I don't like Top Gun. This movie rules. So if you have a chance to see it in theaters, uh, see it on the biggest screen possible, see it in IMAX if you can. Um, It basically does a lot of what Top Gun did, but better because the technology has gotten to the point where you could actually put an IMAX camera in the cockpit and they have certainly Tom Cruise uh, flying these planes, some of these planes, um, but also all the other actors, like just getting footage of them actually reacting to the G-Force and, you know, climbing and everything like it is pretty wild how much of a ride this movie is. Um, so I think it absolutely rules. And I don't even like the original Top Gun. Like I, I was going to say, I you didn't actively care. hate it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's funny. Um, I had um, a couple of friends and I watched the original. We have like a, a virtual movie night we've been doing throughout the pandemic. And none of us had seen Top Gun. So we put it on. And I was like, what the hell is the big deal? What What is happening here? <laughs> I was like, the it stakes is, were so yeah. low for like most of the movie. I'm like, okay, you're at some sort of flight training no thing. Whoop de doo. No stakes. Um, um, I liked Mark I, Green from ER being in it though. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony Michael Hall. Like, yeah, always good to see. Um, you did, the thing about Top Gun, and we just reviewed it on the film cast in one of our After Dark episodes, but it is, it is just like a mood piece, right? It is like, hey, we got guys in fast planes and danger you got zone. this cool danger zone. You got cool music. You got Tom Cruise. Um, it is like all about energy and vibes and not so much about the action, to be honest, because they were mm-hmm. just shooting like B-roll of uh, of uh, Navy fighter jets just go, going all over mm-hmm. the place. Um it is like a combination of things and it has like defined action movies for the past, like basically ever since Top Gun, a lot of movies have been uh, coasting under very similar vibes. So anyway, I don't like Top Gun. I love Top Gun Maverick. Um, also quickly want to shout out Hacks season two, a show we've talked about when the first season came out. This is a show that, that is fantastic. It's about an aging, like an older comedian who brings in this like younger protege to kind of help her. Um, but I, I love it. It is I one of those I shows. Heard- Mm-hmm. I was just say I think I've heard of it. I just heard about it because it came back. What uh, network is it on? It's on HBO Max. Okay. Uh, yeah, and it stars Jean Smart, who is amazing in everything. Like she was on, you know, Twenty Four. She was on Frasier. She she is somebody who has been in TV for a while. It's a really good platform for her to be like sharp and funny. Um, but it's also it's one of those shows where it's like I can't miss ten seconds of this. Like it is so sharply written and everything is so funny about it. Where. I, I just need to, like, drink it in very slowly because the episodes are, like, half an hour long, too. Um, anyway, it's amazing. Check out Hack Season 2 and check out Season 1 if you have not seen it yet. Let's wrap for this episode. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. 
Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find me online at, at Devendra on Twitter and at the Filmcast Podcast. Where can people find you, Nate? I'm on Twitter at Nate Ingram. Email us at podcastandgadget.com. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts. You know, all, all those other platforms. We won't mention a certain streaming music network, but yes, everything. We're out, folks. <laughs>